In nomine de nostri satanas, luciferi excelsit. In the name of Satan, the ruler of the earth, the king of the world, I command the forces of darkness to bestow their infernal power upon me. Open wide the gates of hell and come forth from the abyss to greet me, your brother and friend. Grant me in the indulgences in which I speak. I have taken thy name as a part of myself. I live as the beasts of the field, rejoicing in the fleshly life. I favor the just and curse the rotten. By all the gods of the pit, I command that these things of which I speak shall come to pass. Come forth and answer to your names by manifesting my desires. Oh, hear the names. Asmodeus. Lilith. Kali. Beelzebub. I drink in honor of the company of the Infernal Ones. To the south, Satan, join us. To the east, Lucifer, join us. To the north, Belial, join us. To the west, Leviathan, join us. With the anger of anguish and the wrath of the stifled, I pour forth my voice, wrapped in rolling thunder that you may hear. O oh, great lurkers in the darkness, O oh, guardians of the way, O oh, minions of the might of thought, move and appear. Present yourselves to us in your benign power, on behalf of one who believes and is stricken with torment. Isolate him in the bulwark of your protection, for he is undeserving of anguish and desires it not. Let that which bears against him be rendered powerless and devoid of substance. Succor him through fire and water, earth and air to regain what he has lost. Strengthen with fire the marrow of our friend and companion, our comrade of the left-hand path. Through the power of Satan, let the earth and its pleasures re-enter his being. Allow his vital salts to flow unhampered, that he may savor the carnal nectars of his future desires. 
strike dumb his adversary, formed or formless, that he may emerge joyful and strong from that which afflicts him. Allow no misfortune to allay his path, for he is one of us, and therefore to be cherished. Restore him to power, to joy, to unending dominion over the reverses that have beset him. Build around and within him the exultant radiance that will herald his emergence from the stagnant morass which engulfs him. This we command in the name of Satan, whose mercies flourish and whose sustenance will prevail. As Satan reigns, so shall his own, whose name is as this sound. Adam is the vessel whose flesh is as the earth, life everlasting, world without end. Shemham Farash, hail Satan. Satan, my brother, whom I have been with since my birth. I ask he that has comforted me in my darkest moments, he that has strengthened me in my greatest triumphs, he who has stood with me over the pits side by side and fought off the wretched winged demons from above. My brother, I ask of you to provide me continued success professionally. Allow those above me to witness my merits and reward me thusly. calm over my house, that those struggles that we each individually experience be extinguished by our collective strength. We live our lives in honor of what you symbolize, and it is your strength that guides us. Hail Satan.
So it is done. You're listening to Radio Free Satan. Enjoy the show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a very strange journey. Welcome everyone to Nine Cents. Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world, and I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's great to have you. It is August 12th, and only a couple days away from my birthday, and I have got a great... Okay, well I've got a show for you this week. Because this is sort of my birthday episode, at least I'm going to use it as such, I'm going to be doing it a little bit differently. So if you've tuned in to Nine Cents this week, expecting, even though I'm a day late, it's not really the 12th, it's the 13th, uh, for a t- the typical Nine Cents show, turn it off, you're not going to get it. I'm going to be singing, I'm going to be telling you stories, I'm going to give you a new little mini-segment called Adam's Road Rage. Uh, I'm going to be giving you a couple articles and my take on it, but mainly just sort of hanging out and having fun and drinking. Right now I'm sipping on... <sighs> Belgian White. Really good. I don't have an orange slice in it, but it's still cold and nice in my glass. And a little bit later, I'll be uh, indulging in a little bit of uh, Bushmills. I'm not going to overindulge tonight because I have to work in the morning, but also because this last weekend, I indulged probably a little bit too much. I went to the man camp out this weekend, and you may have heard about it last week or whenever I rant about it uh, on a yearly basis. And this year was a little bit different. There were a lot of plus ones. And in one particular case, there was this guy, this cowboy with two horses. Now, I'm not a horse guy. I married a horse woman, but I am not a horse guy. I do not care about horses. I do not even particularly... I I don't have a fondness. I don't look at a photo of a horse and have my heart sink like some ladies do for whatever reason. I just don't care. Yeah, they're powerful, they're majestic, but I have real-world things to concern myself with, and horses are not on the list. Not at all. I don't mind riding horses, but I never thought going camping with them would be such a pain in my ass. So the point of the man camp out is to get into the wilderness with like-minded men, uh, reflect together over the campfire through drinking and uh, talking and... Uh, just, you know, enjoying the wilderness that that is, uh, you know, nature itself. That's kind of the concept of it, is to get away, sort of reconnect with yourself and nature. Uh, And that is not really possible when everything depends on these retarded horses. So first and foremost, I have to say, I am not a cowboy. I do not like cowboys, because I don't think there's such a thing. There are men who were termed cowboys who rode horses in order to sort of herd together cattle and uh, uh, steers in order, you know, to make a living. And then there's the American version of cowboy, which really is just a douchebag in a 10-gallon hat 
a gigantic belt buckle, and cowboy boots. You get a lot of this in Utah. They don't actually own a ranch, they don't actually have any cattle, and they may or may not have horses. But they identify themselves solely as cowboys. They are more often than not, I'd say 99%, uneducated, completely ignorant, uh, blowhards, very pretentious, complete wastes of human flesh. And then there's actually women who go after these retards. It's it's shocking. Anyway, I, I don't know what I'm talking about. So, uh, I, I don't like cowboys at all, and this guy is a, the stereotype cowboy. Uh, retarded dude, c- completely uneducated, hard to even listen to him talk. I mean, I'm all for busting on each other, but he sort of like zoned in on my nephew and my sort of protective instincts kicked in. And I mean, this guy's just a retard. I, anyway, I'm not trying to really knock on him in this segment. It's about the horses that he brought. So it takes... You have to have a specific campsite to accommodate the horses. They have to be able to eat, after all. You have to... And drink water. Um, you Just packing and unpacking a horse takes a ridiculous amount of time where I could just throw together my backpack in literally two and a half minutes and be hiking uh, deeper into the mountains. We have to literally wait about two hours for this dude. And it's not something that three or four guys can help with. It's literally a two-man job. I mean, any more than that, and you're just getting each other's way. So we can't speed the process along. It's really frustrating. Uh, Just, you know, between the horses, between... Uh, the ridiculous snide comments and inability to communicate with the rest of the people it ended up being really a shitty camp out. I mean, I was really pretty disappointed with the entire thing. And my vacation was filled with yard work and uh, entertaining friends. And the entertaining friends part wasn't bad, but the yard work, well, I mean, I was, you know, out there all day for a number of days, so it was it was exhausting. So, I guess going back to work is kind of like a vacation for my vacation. Yeah. (laughs) Kind of shitty. I don't know what to do about it. I mean, there was a lot of great moments during the campout. But they were moments. And most of them, when it was just me early morning sitting on a cliff face overlooking a lake and watching the sunrise. Those were the moments. Or watching the sun set later that evening. All the other guys were all just sort of huddled together, drinking and, and talking smack. And I uh, had to get away. <laughs> uh, it gets to a point where I wonder whether I should even do this, or whether I should just go by myself. Because I, I'm not even sure what I get out of the group. You know what I mean? The group element. I mean, I, certainly I could experience a better lycanthropic change by myself. Which, actually, may be uh, the best thing... I could possibly do. Mm. You know what I did? I actually loaded up my phone with uh, Old Nick Magazine. (laughs) I didn't actually ever look at it, and I never really... I mean, there was never really a moment to sit back and look at it. But it is something to know. Old Nick Magazine, go to oldnickmagazine.com. You can get every single one of their magazine issues digitally for your computer, for your iPod, for your Droid, for your Nook, whatever can open PDF documents. Uh, It is available, and there is never a bad time. I cannot think of a wrong time to skim through Old Nick. 
I mean, if you just need a nipple fix. <laughs> if you're an addict and you need a nipple fix. Uh, only Magazine. If you just want to consume a, a short, entertaining story. Only Magazine. If you want to get reviews on CDs, books, and movies. Old Nick Magazine. If you want to hear an editorial uh, about a, a known author or filmmaker, Old Nick Magazine. There's something for everyone. Check it out, oldnickmagazine.com. And you know what? Thinking of Old Nick Magazine and, and this man camp out, and, and really maybe the, uh, the moment of clarity I had is that I am a very fortunate human being. I have a beautiful wife. I have beautiful children. I have a, a very good job. I have a few very good friends and a lot of good friends. Uh, I, I just feel very fortunate. In fact, yeah, it's gonna—it's a song moment now. <laughs> I've got the world on a string. I'm sitting on a rainbow. I've got that string around my finger. What a world, what a life, I'm in love. I've got a song that I sing, I can make the rain go. Anytime I move my finger, look at me, can't you see I'm in love. And life's a beautiful thing, as long as I hold that string, I'd be a silly so-and-so. If I should ever let it go, I'll never let it go. I've got the world on a string, sitting on a rainbow. I've got that string around my finger. What a world. Nonsense, this is the life. Hey, now I'm so in love. Yeah, I bet it would be better with a good singer in an orchestra, but I give a fuck. I'm still going to do it. So I was telling you earlier <laughs> that I was going to do this sort of new segment uh, called Adam's Rose Rage. So let me sort of set this up. I normally, uh, I have a long commute to work. So I'm quite often in the car when I think of my Bizarre the Bizarre segments or just random things that bother me, or, or, you know, just interesting notes, for example. So I pull out my phone, and I hit record, and I just sort of talk. So there's a lot of static from the, uh, the road around me. It's really uh, ambient in sound, um, because it's my phone after all. But I'm going to give you a couple of those. And like I said before, this is where I get a lot of my Bizarre Bizarre. So I may run one or two of these that you've heard already in the Bizarre Bizarre. But this is really the first the first moments of them. And because I know everyone doesn't listen to every single episode of Nine Cents. And because if you do listen to every episode of Nine Cents, you may not necessarily remember every single segment. I don't mind you know, running these, if, if I've run them before, I mean, you know, I've got almost, well, I'm, I'm a year and a half now into episodes weekly, so, uh, you know, chances you haven't heard it are pretty damn high. So, I'm gonna hit the beginning of this with, uh, the Bizarre the Bizarre, and then I will kick it over right into a few of my really unedited, completely unedited road rages. So, good or bad, here they are. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, you ever look at your shadow when you're like walking down the street or something and your hair has this weird, wild, crazy shape to it you had no idea about? So you have to sort of walk by the, the first car you see with a reflective window rolled up and look at it, but you don't want to look like you're looking at it. You don't want to look like the narcissist that you are, but you, you really are the biggest narcissist on the planet. Looking in another <laughs> car window for your reflection and you're like fixing your hands and you realize that someone's sitting in the car because they're, they're looking right at you because you're some fucking retard staring <laughs> at them fixing your hair as if they were the reflection so <laughs> I have done this myself on numerous no but I, I see like you, you think you know what you look like you know you walk by you see yourself from your eye perspective height and angle and you know everything you think you look like that and then every once in a while you just see your shadow and you realize that you don't look like what you thought you looked like or there's like three mirrors in a room and you can see the back of your head or the side of your head and you're like holy fuck is that really that's what everyone else is seeing and it's shocking and it's sad and it's disappointing but what are you going to do about it it's just you looking like a fucking freak yeah that happened to me today I was walking down, I saw my shadow, my hair was like all fucked up. It got to this point where I, I didn't, there's there's like an open walled gym right next to me, so I didn't want to be that weirdo that stops and looks inside. <laughs> so I got in my car, I started driving home, and I sort of, you know, you, I don't know, sometimes I like move my head when I look in the rearview mirror as if I can somehow see a better angle by moving my head, but then I just really just see my fucking forehead staring back at me. Uh, so I'm looking at the rearview mirror and I notice my hair and I immediately get that flashback of the fucking shadow so I go to fucking fix my hair and still people are judging me I dude's driving I'm fucking, fucking like from right behind me passing me on the left here looks right over at me and sort of does that <laughs> you know like without the sound that just that head rise <laughs> so either it could have meant hey how's it going dude or you fucking narcissist and yeah I, I could taste the judging on his lips. It was very gay sounding, but it was actually very shaming. Which being very gay and tasting other men's lips would always also cause me to feel shame. Uh, Alright, well, I guess I'll just end it there then. Alright, so my daughter's watching Finding Nemo, and she's seen it a hundred, at least a thousand and a hundred and ten times. So, that would be 1,110 times, and today is going to be one. So, one, one, one. One. She's seen it. And she comes up to me, Nemo and Dory, were, a big fish ate them. And she was so distraught and so upset. And I was like, I, I know. You know. So, who? I mean, it's not, a, it's not a shock, and she's genuinely upset. She's looking at it. She's looking at me like I'm some man on the mountain. She just hiked up three hours on a fucking hill, and she's all tired and hungry, and please provide wisdom of what to do with Dora and Nemo's father. They've been eaten by a whale. And I'm just like, I don't care. It, I, this it means nothing to me. And so she, like, reaches in, she grabs me, and puts her head in my lap, and another word for lap is 
junk, and I don't want it there. It's I think I think it's kind of weird. And this is like one of those things. As a parent, there's a point where you you don't grow up at all, but your children grow up to your private parts. <laughs> And suddenly what was before like a shin hug and a knee hug and a thigh hug becomes a junk hug. And so you have to go, like, you have to take a knee and you have to make sure that they're not getting a face full of all of you, which is a horrible thing to do as a parent. So you got to be unconscious about that. You, 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 like, sort of duck down, you give a knee. My son is the exact opposite. He's, like, past the groin, stomach, and he's, like, at nipple range, and it's... It's hot in my house, and so I rarely, if ever, wear a shirt. For fuck, I'm a guy. Who cares? I don't wear shirts, and I mean I work out, so you know it's not like I'm a monster. You know, I, I look pretty fucking okay. I, <laughs> I would like to think, but not for your son. And so he gives me a hug, and literally, I'd a nipple. And so it's always kind of weird because he knows, and he's turning his head, and I'm sort of turning my body as he's turning his head, not to get a fucking eye full of nipple, and it's like this really weird, I gotta tell you, it's, it's not worth having kids, because they grow up and it becomes we sexually awkward, <laughs> just, I don't want my son to know about sex through my nipple in his eye, <laughs> or, or, or like my junk on the back of my daughter's head, I, that's just not right, it's not right, and it's not funny, and I shouldn't. It's, uh, uh, don't have kids. This is why you shouldn't have kids. Lesson learned. <laughs> Alright. Well, I didn't run any that I was planning on running. Uh, I just happened to have these two latest ones. I, my iTunes crashed a little while ago, and I reinstalled an older version of iTunes so that it would actually work again, and I guess it erased all of my freaking voice memos, so... Uh, it's a good thing I write things down sometimes. So I'm going to have some that are lost, but, you know, those two are, eh, they're all right. <laughs> Shit I think about all the time. Um, really kind of weird. <clears throat> but, uh, all right, so I, I think I want to, uh, yeah, a little Black House Blues song. So this is a song I've been working on. I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with it. But it's a lot of fun. It's a little reminiscent. I, I try not to, but the the way I, I sort of sing blues... I feel like it sounds... Well, I'm not going to say it because then it'll sort of give you a predisposition of the sound. Uh, you can judge for yourself. I'm probably going to speed it up a little bit uh, because it can be a little bit long, but, I mean, I, I do have a lot of time here. <laughs> I'm not in a rush. Are you in a rush? Oh, come on. You're not in a rush, right? This is my birthday episode. Just sit back and enjoy the aching years that I'm going to give you. <clears throat> so, this was actually inspire, inspired a little bit by Glory, and you're going to see why here in just a second. Yeah, that's right. Glory. <clears throat> mm, sitting down in hell, mm, I hear infernal bells, mm, someone standing up there, mm, fix on dialing hell, mm, I want to sell my soul. Mm, devil, you gotta help me. Mm, I wanna have this woman. Mm, want her to take care of me. Mm, mm, I don't want your soul. Mm, you poor wretch of a man. Mm, old girl, don't want you. Mm, you ain't no kind of man. 
Mm, I don't want your soul. Mm, y'all listen right here. You ain't gonna have her Cause you ain't no balls You sick little man Feel the warmth of the flames Run across my skin Hear the cries of a man Echoing down here Wanna sell my soul Devil, you gotta see. Mm, come on, make me some wealthy. <laughs> God, fuck. Come on, make me wealthy. Mm, give me lots of money. Mm, mm, I don't want your soul. Mm, you ain't work for a day. Mm, you ain't gonna make money. I don't want your soul Y'all listen right here Ain't gonna get paid Cause you ain't working for even a day I don't want your soul I wanna sell my soul Don't want your soul Listen here fool I don't want your soul so, you know, whatever it's worth, uh, it was called, <laughs> guess what? I don't want your soul. That's right. Big shocker there, I know. Uh, it is a, a song that's sort of inspired, like, the idea that, that anyone can just sell their soul, and I just don't think that's the case. Like, okay, let, let's reality check here. No one can sell their soul because there's no devil, but let's talk mythologically. Let's talk just in fun. Let's say there is a devil, and he does allow you to sign away your soul. I don't think he wants everyone's soul. There's some real fucking losers out there. So this song sort of just inspired me. You know, the first gentleman's case, he wanted uh, a woman. And the second gentleman's case, he wanted money. And neither case, the devil wanted his soul. I would imagine the devil being discerning. He wants quality souls. Not quantity, quality. Um, That's how I sort of live my life. So I figure he probably does too. Uh, he's got to be the biggest Epicurean. After all, he has all of mankind <laughs> to feed from, right? I mean, he, he literally can get any one of the souls out there. Why would he take all the shitty ones? I don't think so. I always wonder what he does with them. Like, let's... Okay, again, let me clarify. We are you know, just having fun here, not being literal or, or trying to be realistic in any way at all. This is all just fun. Okay, so let, let's say he does take a bunch of souls. What the fuck does he do with them? He just, like has a room, he just (laughs) throws extra souls in the room, like, open the door, they're all trying to bust out, and he's, like, shoving his leg in, like, get back, I don't, stay in there, and how can you really enjoy, if you do have a whole bunch of souls, can you really, like, do you just occasionally, like, pull one out of the room, and just sort of set it, I don't, what, what, like, on a chair, do you set souls down, you just sort of let it float for a minute, and, and then what do you do with it, you just, poke it? I mean, what do you... I don't understand... The the concept... I mean, do you consume it? Is it something that you, like, get a straw and stick into it and just... You know? It's kind of weird. Like, what? what's the benefit of having one to a billion and seventeen souls? I, I'm not 
entirely sure <laughs> I understand that notion. But, eh, what are you going to do, right? Uh, okay, so what's next on the plate here? Let me look. I'm just sort of ranting on here. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some memorable moments in life. After all, this is my birthday episode, so I'm going to give you a little taste of what it means to be Adam. Uh, a little taste. I, you've probably gotten throughout the course of this show more of a taste <laughs> than you've ever wanted of what it means to be Adam. Uh, some real weird shit. But, if not, if you think everything's pedestrian, well, maybe I can give you a little bit more here in this little moment, in this little segment. In the number of significant events in one's life, certainly in my life, I always sort of fall back to one. Uh, before I went on this man camp out and before my friends came in from out of town, uh, I put them up in my house and everything, I, I took a drive uh, to downtown Salt Lake, which is actually really beautiful. There's this place called the Avenues, which is just essentially a, a gigantic hillside with tons and tons of houses all arranged in a grid. And uh, in the upper middle of this is a cemetery. When I was in high school, I, and I've talked about this before, a friend of mine committed suicide, and it was it was a huge, huge event in my life that really spun me a little bit. It got me sort of searching in the occult and um, alternate realities for any way I could to reconnect with him. Uh, I actually ran into this little vampire thing for quite some time, and it was it was interesting. It, I mean, it, they were gothic. I never really was, but it, it was just an experience, I'll say. Um, and actually, a lot of my sexual deviant behaviors still stem from <laughs> the, the cutting and bloodletting that I, I picked up from there. Uh, just a side note. So, uh, through that, I got what I needed. Uh, and that was to come to terms with the idea that my my friend is gone and there's nothing that I can do to change that so I have to accept it and sort of move on and that was really the first time that I dealt with death personally um, and I, really we were pretty good friends but not you know we were like a year from growing apart uh, so you know we had a past connection which is why I think it affected me and a lot of it also I think has a lot to do with when someone dies you sort of want to feel bad like and I don't know is it because you're expected to uh, I mean I've spoken to it on the show before where there's almost like this this fame you get on those who were connected to the loss the more you mourn the more the more important you are at that moment, you know. So there's this weird narcissist edge to it as well. Uh, but similar moments that I would later connect with, uh, my mother lying to me, uh, telling me that my father was dead for all she knew, uh, lie by omission or, or lie by not actually addressing the issue. And than me realizing that, wow, my mother, the person that raised me, had fucking lied to me for 17, 18 years of my life. And then an equally painful moment was when I communicated with my father for the first time and was terribly disappointed with the type of human being he was. 
I mean, I knew that he... I, I had vague memories of him even beating my mom when I was a little, very little child. So I knew he was a horrible person, but I always thought he always would love me no matter what. It's my dad, you know, he, he my blood father. And when, when you do finally meet him and you realize that, like, I, I told him that I was a Satanist. Um, he, I mean, he was a Mormon, and, and he really, he was like, you know what, if, if, if I was there, I would smack that nonsense right out of you. I was like, wow, <laughs> great homecoming moment, Dad. So that was that was interesting. And then the next communication I had um, went a little bit better, but still bizarre. And then he died when I was in uh, basic training. So it was it was just, or or he died, and I found out about it when I was in basic training. It was really really weird. So that was that was a memorable moment. But the the pain was always diminished. Like I I think that first experience of death and tragedy hits you the hardest because you're literally losing your innocence in it and then everything else is sort of a little, little easier to take um, the next hugely memorable moment in my life was joining the military and that experience was a kick in my ass I didn't have any other way to pay for college my stepdad is a retired vet, war veteran from uh, Vietnam and uh, Captain Very powerful human being and I respect him greatly uh, he always said I should, my, my stepfather I should say he always said I should join uh, because I really did. I was sort of floating you know um, and the military taught above and beyond anything else discipline and self worth I found both in spades I, I always had a god complex as a kid um, whether it was through working out with my buddies uh abandoning any of the nonsense very early on in my life about the Mormon religion and really just saying, well, I, I am God. <laughs> so you have to deal with that. That's, you know, very young age, um, just identifying with very satanic ideals. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it wasn't a, a realistic satanic ideal. I mean, it was very narcissistic, but uh, the fundamentals were there. And then uh, going to the military achievements within their huge, huge memorable moment in my life, and then college. Uh, I was the first of my siblings to uh, graduate college uh, with any form of a degree. Um, that was a big deal. Uh, my marriage, awkward, but still quite a huge deal. Learning to live with someone else. Learning to uh, be yourself in a relationship. That, that was a huge thing for me to understand. And then years after we were married, learning to uh, identify myself as a individual, as a husband, and then as a father, that, that was probably the biggest life-changing moment uh, uh, to date. Um, I mean, I, I bawled with my children in my hands, you know, each time. It was, uh, it was a very powerful moment for me, and something that... I will always have, you know, I, I don't really know how to describe it, but I, I really do feel like a god when I'm holding something that I created with my wife. Out of nothing, out of us, you know, that, that's a huge thing. Um, learning to be a father was really tough, especially if you're a selfish individual. Um, and making that adjustment is absolutely necessary. So, 
whatever you have to do to rationalize it, you, you need to do that as a human being because you owe it to this life that you created. Uh, if you're going to be a god, be a benevolent god. Be a caring god. Be a loving god. Uh, and so I certainly try to do that with my kids. Um, until they can realize that they are their own, <laughs> you know? I certainly don't want to rule over them or anything. That's a little weird. And then, uh, you know what? Starting this podcast... It may sound really stupid. It was a huge, huge moment for me. I started it with the idea that I would just sort of rant for a while and allow my friends who had moved away to, uh, you know, connect with me through that medium. I never thought that I would have as many regular listeners as I do, uh, as as many very intelligent and thoughtful listeners as I do. I always, and I don't know why, a little self-deprecation, I suppose, imagine that the people that listen to me uh, are, are kind of like me, you know? But there's this huge, vast difference in, in every single person that's contacted me about this show. Um, they, they measure success in their own way, and they're all very successful. And, uh, you know, I just got to say thank you for listening again. I know I say it a lot, but I, it, I, I do really mean it. it it's very nice. And when I do get to have these episodes, because these, this show is weekly, so, you know, naturally, like anything that is repetitive, some episodes are going to be better than others. I've come to terms with that. And I hope you have, too. Uh, but it's nice, right? I mean, it, it, it's, this, it's this way of reaching out and connecting and sharing something I'm passionate about, and that's, that's our, our existence here right now and the weird things that happen around us. Uh, the things that influence us, and the way we can influence the world. Uh, and then Satanism, you know, something that I really, truly, you know, I just identify as, as a portion of who I am, a very powerful portion of who I am. Uh, I think it's nice. And then, you know, just the weird, crazy, random shit that I threw out there as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, those are some memorable moments in uh, Adam's life. <laughs> Good times. I don't think I'm drinking fast enough. I do think I'm going to be throwing in an informal one. Infernal Informant here. I've got two articles to go through um, that I thought would be interesting to read because they're they're relevant and uh, you know they sort of ring a chord with um, those like us. And then I'll close it with a song, and that'll do it for the show. I may be a little short on this show, but you know what can you do? Uh, there's the ritual at the very beginning that that uh, sort of filled in some time. Uh, and I guess that'll be it. So let's go ahead and move into the Infernal Informant. Alright. I can't remember if I mentioned it already, but I got a fan going here, so you might be hearing that in the background as well. So uh, do not adjust your headsets. Okay, so the first article is The Ryan Way. And this is from National Review Online. Mitt Romney has a history of elevating young talent by Robert Costa. As Representative Paul Ryan of Wisconsin has risen in the vice presidential sweepstakes, a few political observers joked that the athletic 42-year-old congressman with his jet black hair and square jaw 
looks like one of Romney's five sons. But according to Romney's confidants, Ryan's appeal to the former Massachusetts governor is far more professional than filial. He's the kind of smart young guy that Mitt likes, and Mitt would have probably hired at Bain, says Mike Murphy, a former Romney advisor. He shares the intellectual talent and positive outlook of the guys who Mitt mentored for decades. Back when he was running Bain Capital, Romney was known for following a management method called the Bain Way. In their book, The Real Romney, Michael Cranish and Scott Hellman describe it as intensely analytical and data-driven. It requires a healthy ego, the authors write, to go into a business and tell an owner how to run his own firm better. It also requires a specific type of talent. Bain Capital operates as a small shop, and Romney took care to hire ambitious and serious business school graduates, fresh-thinking young men he could develop, not just seasoned Wall Street hands. In the late 1970s, I was asked to help recruit bright, recently graduated MBAs to join the firm, Romney recalls in his book, No Apology. We were a cutting-edge company, we paid high salaries, and we usually landed the cream of the crop. Edward Connard, a partner at Bain Capital from 93 to 97 and the author of Unintended Consequences, tells NRO that Romney's effectiveness was sharpened by his relationships with the rising star consultants he recruited. So he's not surprised to see Romney form a bond with the analytical Ryan. Romney may not have an overly warm figure in the office, he says, but he's clearly drawn to uber-competent thinkers. That was competent, not competent. I saw it firsthand, Conard said. Romney's challenged us to challenge each other, and he was never afraid to ask tough questions or answer them. He surrounded himself with the sharpest, most talented guys and ran the place like a consulting firm where employees were expected to create value, to do their homework, and present proposals rooted in facts. In Ryan, you see that kind of politician. He's not slinging bull. Inside Romney's Boston headquarters, aspects of the Bain way have seeped into the campaign effort. Spencer Zwick, a 32-year-old private equity investor who was dubbed Romney's sixth son by Politico, runs Romney's finance team. Bob White, a mid-50s former Bain Capital partner, is one of Romney's closest advisors and a frequent presence at Romney's side. Bob White is an important advisor, and he has known the governor since the early days at Bain, says Ron Kaufman, a Romney strategist and former White House political director. While they're not the entire campaign, people like Spencer and Bob come out of the business world, known the governor very well, and have perspectives and skills that are valued. Um, sorry, it's opening the other page. A number of Romney sources say Romney runs his campaign horizontally, with advisors working on specific projects, and Romney, the obvious overseer of the enterprise. Uh, this approach is similar to how I was going to make a Star Trek <laughs> reference. I chose not to, and then I chose to reference that I was going to make the reference. What the fuck? Uh, this approach is similar to how Bain Capital was run, with a tight-knit group of senior partners reporting directly to the chief executive presenting him with various options. These days, many of Romney's top political advisors are youthful Republican whiz kids, such as Lonnie Chen, the policy director who holds four degrees from Harvard, and Alex Wong, another Harvard-trained policy guru. At Bain, Romney searched for partners who fit his comfort zone. Cranish and Hellman write, 
Chen and Wong fit that mold, as does Ryan, who's partner, or I'm sorry, a part of a kitchen cabinet of business leaders and policy experts who talk regularly with Romney. We're very much inclined in the same direction, Romney told NRO in March. We have spoken together about my plan on Medicare, for example, and ultimately the Wyden-Ryan bill is very similar, if not identical, to what I proposed some time ago. We all have ideas at what should be done with Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and we're on the same page. According to Romney insiders, Romney deeply appreciates Ryan's willingness to privately share his critique of the campaign during the heated Republican primary, where Romney often struggled to make his case. As he watched from afar, long before he endorsed, Ryan drafted a series of detailed strategy and policy advisories and discussed them with Romney over the phone. For Romney, these corporate-styled memos made a lasting impression and catapulted Ryan into Romney's circle, where he has remained since. Both men are intelligent and very empirically minded, driven by facts, says Peter Weiner, a friend of Ryan's and former Bush and Reagan administration official. When he looks at Ryan, Romney probably sees someone like himself, a person he'd want to decide in the business world or the political world. They approach complicated problems the same way. Since Romney's Veep, Search, has been hush-hush, no one knows whether Ryan's budding alliance with Romney will put him on the Republican ticket, but if Romney's personal practices at Bain and on another campaign trail are any indication, it would make sense that Ryan is a leading candidate for the job. On the other hand, Bain Capital isn't always going to translate into the political world. Who Romney hired at Bain and who he picked for vice presidents are two very different things, Murphy says. Romney may want more of a political operative to be VP since the position isn't about being a policy star, which is Ryan's strength, but going to a lot of state funerals, etc. Well, that was that was weird. Uh, still, Murphy concedes the Bane ana- analogy fits here because Ryan is connected with Romney, personally, politically, and is savvy wonks. And at the 11th hour of the selection process, that kind of relationship, a type Romney has cultivated for years, could tip the Veep scales in the congressman's favor. And I've actually heard that he is, in fact, his running mate. Uh, he is the vice president now. So, Ryan, Romney, Ryan ticket. What's a conservative dream, and what a progressive nightmare. This is the greatest news to not only Republicans, but also to (laughs) Democrats, because uh, Paul Ryan is very on the edge in the conservative world, and Mitt Romney is doing everything he can to stay connected to that edge. So Ryan has uh, a really strong Tea Party and conservative evangelical connection. Um, Romney did not, so he needed that. Without that, there is no way in hell a Republican can win with our currently divided, really divisive uh, political scenery. Not that I think it's ever not been, but... Uh, maybe a little bit more so lately. What this does say, if if they do end up being president and vice president in this coming year's election, America will no longer be a representative of the people, it will be a business. And that's something that should be on everyone's mind. America has business transactions, but it is not a corporation. And the idea of running it as such, you have to stop and take a look at it. When when the Founding Fathers, and I'm going to touch on this in the next article here, 
When the Founding Fathers uh, created this republic, they did it because they didn't want individuals to have sway over government. But they also didn't necessarily want corporate entities to have sway over the government. I mean, that's the sort of thing that they went away from with Britain. So, to think that we are going to usher in this corporatist world, I mean, Ryan Romney ticket is the way to do that, if ever there was a way. Uh, Reagan started it uh, in, in recent past uh, Bush won, not so much. Uh, Clinton actually <laughs> helped it a lot with uh, Glass-Eagle uh, repeal. And then, what are you going to do? Uh, Bush, too, comes in and really nails home the coffin. Obama comes in and <laughs> doesn't do anything to stop the true crisis, which would mean regulating the banks uh, in a way that Glass-Eagle actually did, but he doesn't do that. Wall Street and the banks still hate him because he's not corporate enough, but he's not progressive or democratic enough for everyone else, so he sort of shoots himself in the foot. So what is the options here? Do you go with a very corporate America, or do you go with a semi-corporate America? Neither of them have been around in America's real heydays, it's really just been the decline of the American economy, and yet we continue down this corporatist road. If, if that's what we're going to do, fine. Let's, let's own up and let's do a Romney-Ryan ticket and let's just see how, how good or bad they do. But if history is any indication, it's not going to be good. And we know because we have quite a few years of evidence that when corporations run the nation it goes downhill because corporations don't give a fuck about the nation. They only care about their bottom line and their investors, and that's it. So, uh, and that's not to say that the opposite end cares about the people anymore. They just pretend better, <laughs> you know? So, anyway, I, I just thought that was interesting. Uh, Paul Ryan, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever done anything on him, but I, I swear to you, in the coming weeks, I will hit some very, very... Um, great points on this man. Um, I'm going to bring a little information your way about Paul Ryan and, and help you make an educated decision because I don't think you're going to get an educated decision from the actual news. <laughs> like at all. Um, but uh, yeah, look forward to that. Okay, so the next article here is actually the Miami Herald posted, <coughs> excuse me, Monday. Um, let's see. Christian conservatives playing victim card by Mary Sanchez. Religious bigots have been active lately. And I actually found this on a social networking site. It was actually under a different name uh, from a different political view, uh, much more progressive. But I decided to go with this article because I felt it was a little bit more even-handed, though still, how even-handed can you be with such a religious notion? Religious bigots have been active lately. Six Sikhs were slaughtered two Sundays ago by gunmen while peacefully going to their house of worship in the outskirts of Milwaukee. The gunman killed himself, so we may never learn the full story of his motivations, but it is clear that he considers his victims religion alien to his idea of America, and it's quite possible he is unaware of the distinction between Sikhism and Islam. The next day, a Muslim mosque near Joplin, 
burned to the ground. The fire has been labeled suspicious. Federal agents are swarming the area. A July 4th fire, the same mosque, had already been determined to be arson. It will soon... I'm sorry, it will surprise no one if the culprits turn out to be a nutcase with a hatred of non-Christians and non-Caucasians, someone for whom all Muslims are terrorists. It would be a mistake, however, to dismiss the nativist paranoia behind the terrorism as an aberration, for it echoes through mainstream politics and culture with right-wing media personalities and elected officials promoting the idea that Christians, who comprise the vast majority of Americans, are somehow the true victims of religious discrimination. Considering the constitutional amendment, Missourians went to the polls and overwhelmingly approved the day after the mosque burned to ashes. It purported to secure the right to pray. It passed by a five-to-one margin, and no wonder its most troubling passages were not spelled out on the ballot. Yes, ballot did stipulate that the amendment would guarantee the wholly uncontroversial and already quite secure right of Missourians to assert their religious beliefs. It also made clear that the amendment would establish the right for school children to pray and acknowledge God voluntarily in their schools. Many voters weren't aware of this passage from the amendment that was not included on the ballot. No student shall be compelled to perform or participate in academic assignments or educational presentations that violate his or her religious beliefs, or of the language in the amendment protecting the right of elected officials to prey on public property. Why is such an amendment necessary, a thinking person might ask? In a state where 80% of all citizens are avowed Christians, where churches are socially prominent institutions, and where public displays of Christian piety are the stock and trade of successful politicians, why, while the Muslims of Joplin picked through the rubble to salvage remnants of the Quran from their burned mosque, and while the Sikhs of Milwaukee burn, I'm sorry, mourning their dead, did the humble Christian folk of Missouri vote to protect the right to pray in this way? Were they thinking of their persecuted brethren of other faiths? Most voters who approved the Missouri Prayer Amendments likely assumed the proposal sounded innocuous, knowing that other religions' freedoms are already guaranteed by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. But when pressed by media, many backers of the amendment spoke about ensuring that school children have the right to refuse learning about Buddha or Islam or being somehow indoctrinated by learning about how Muslims pray facing Mecca, east in the Midwest. And there, the true intent of the ballot initiative is, is discovered. This amendment is for conservative Christians who are offended that they might have to acknowledge that not everyone in America is Christian. As I write this, I'm wearing a white gold cross necklace. There's a St. Christopher's metal mixed in with the paper clips on a desk. A few biblical quotes are tacked up, too. I can pause any time I want to say a few words of prayer. As a Christian, I am not under siege. My church will be standing on Sunday. The ACLU has filed a federal lawsuit arguing that a section of the amendment, also not spelled out in the ballot language, does not extend its protections to all citizens equally. To wit, this section shall not be construed to expand the rights of prisoners in state or local custody beyond those afforded by the laws of the United States. Classic. 
It's always a red flag when a majority group falsely claiming discrimination against itself lays the groundwork for allowing discrimination against another group. So the question has to be asked. Did the Christian conservatives pushing this amendment offer prayers on behalf of suffering Muslims in Joplin or the Sikhs in Wisconsin? So that's the article. Uh, I thought it was interesting because it was a Christian viewpoint uh, very much against the idea of this past amendment in ensuring Christians the right to not be discriminated. So absurd. When you think about the idea that in God we trust wasn't included on our currency into the 50s, and when you think about the God line in um, um, uh, the Pledge of Allegiance, uh, it was added in the 50s as well. You see a lot of the Christian dogma pushed into our political arena at that point. Uh, and, and that's when... And, and it's funny, because after a generation, after two generations, people forget that it was not there before. And they assume that it's always been there. And so they apply this backward thinking that if it's there now, we must have started there with a Christian nation. And no matter how many writings are revealed from the Founding Fathers or their closest confidants, we still are stuck with this social accepted idea that somehow Christians are just have to be here or have always been here. Uh, that's not the case. That's not the case at all. And it was a lot of sort of the McCarthy area era that brought them to the forefront uh, and certainly into our currency and into our Pledge of Allegiance. When you can have a people bring an amendment to their state constitution that flies in the face of the actual U.S. constitution, well, the Supreme Court can very easily overturn it. But will anyone bring it up to that level? I mean, are, are we going to just be content with, okay, there's, there's overly religious areas that we just can't go to where the U.S. constitution in the United States doesn't really apply because their local constitution is, uh, what, more important? I mean, we have to look at ourselves as Americans and, and, and come to some form of an agreement that, yes, we realize that this Christian addition to everything that is America is a lie and was added many, many hundreds of years after. But uh, are we going to? I, I don't think so. And especially with our current political environment. I mean, we have a two-party system, and one of those parties' balls are tied to the crucifix. Um, not very comfortable position to be in, uh, and certainly I'm sure many of them could tell you that. But it is a reality that they have to work within, because so many of Americans are uneducated, so many of Americans are ignorant, so many of Americans are Christian. It is sad. But yeah, so, so to my point before... We were created as a republic, a representative democracy, so that individuals wouldn't have the right to oppress other people or to create these ridiculous amendments um, to obviously, obviously skirt the Constitution or, or, uh, or national law. 
But in our modern fucking political environment, it, it's these very um, amendments to state constitutions that are put forward by people, by the regular people, who think they're doing a great service to the country, but really, they're just shutting down another part of the country. It's that idea that, well, I don't want my taxes to pay for abortions, so I shouldn't have to pay this much in taxes, or, or I, I, should, I should have some say in the tax code. No! Your representatives are there specifically to look at the greater picture. When you're sitting here focusing on yourself, you don't see the greater picture. There are more than you, believe it or not, in your area that your representatives care about. You are their constituents. You put them up there. Now, you may have not actually done it yourself, but the majority of those around you did. And no one knows that more than me in Utah with fucking Republicans everywhere. And they constantly vote in Republican corporatists year after year. Ironically, Utah's not doing too bad locally. <laughs> so I don't really complain too much about it. Uh, our economy is pretty damn good, actually. But, <laughs> on a national scale, uh, Warren Hatch is a douchebag. Just gotta throw that out there. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's just one thing I wanted to bring up. That you having your right to say whatever you want and have that become a law because you get a bunch of other ignorant assholes together is not what was ever intended. And is a huge problem with constitutional law and uh, federal and state law. So just just something to you know I just wanted to throw out there, you know, you don't like it, suck it, <laughs> and that's gonna do it for that part of the infernal informant. I had a, a bunch of little pauses in there. All right, so last year uh, during my birthday episode, I did a little uh, ode. I, I was raised by a bunch of women who always watch The Sound of Music, so that is stuck in my head quite often. Um, and so that song, a few of my favorite things, I sung last year. I sort of refined it a little bit. I, I narrowed it a little bit more to sexuality. And I'm going to uh, sing it here for you as a closing song. And I hope <laughs> you'll appreciate it. I start off very non-sexual and I, I immediately take a left turn into Sexville. So uh, prepare yourself. <laughs> Freshly cut grass and a cold beer in my hand. Under boobs, side boob, hell, any boobs real grand. Using both hands when you go down on me. These are a few of my favorite things. Feeling a hard nipple slide across my palm. Giving you goosebumps on the curve of your hip bone. Singing to my girl how sexy she can be. These are a few of my favorite things. When I'm sick of it. When darkness covers me, when all I see is red, I simply remember these few little things, and then I bring her in our bed. <laughs> a little retarded, you know. Whatever. It's quirky. Deal with it. Okay, and you know what? That's going to do it for another show. Woo! It's been an hour. It's actually been over an hour uh, with the ritual, so... You know what? Thanks for listening. That was my birthday show, and I only had one beer the entire time. Huh. I'm not sure how I feel about that. Anyway, 
I hope you enjoyed it, and I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or general comments you might have. You can visit the Satanet, Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 Cents and get updated on weekly topics. We're also now available on Last.fm. Listen to the show at RadioFreeSatan.com or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com. You can also subscribe via iTunes by searching 9cents and don't forget to leave a rating and or comment. And I mean it. I know I get a lot of downloads. I look at how many downloads I get. And I don't have a fraction of those downloads giving me a like on iTunes. And I realize a lot of you don't use iTunes and that's fine. But if you want to help spread the word, that's a really good place to start. And so, you know, word of mouth, tell other people... Regular 9 cents episodes are pretty good. The birthday episodes are a little weird. Uh, you know what? Listen. I appreciate it. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit radiofreesatan.com, an online streaming radio station. Once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, Hail Satan! Hail Satan!